Thanks for listening. The Forgotten Battles podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, or your preferred podcatcher. If you would like to support the show, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash forgottenbattles. Also, please rate and review the show on your preferred platform. The city of Gaza was a fortified strong point, many miles inside of Ptolemy's border. Gaza is located across a stretch of desert that only ends at the city of Pelusion in Egypt. To cross this stretch of desert with a large force going in either direction can be logistically difficult if there is opposition of some kind. Demetrius's decision to station himself at Gaza was perhaps designed partly in the hope that he would have the advantage over his foes in freshness and provisions, and that this factor would be enough to put him over the top. While Demetrius had a tendency to be overly aggressive throughout his career, in this campaign, his forward positioning was actually quite rational. Additionally, when we look at the opposing orders of battle, we will see that the flat terrain near Gaza was ideal for enabling Demetrius to best utilize his advantage in cavalry. Given the difficult and bloody assault that Alexander had been forced to make in 332, Another option for Demetrius might have been to install a garrison at Gaza and hope that Ptolemy would get bogged down trying to pry it loose. In any event, Demetrius' advance meant that the invading army under Ptolemy and Seleucus found itself engaged far earlier than expected. Demetrius' army at Gaza was arrayed facing the south. The son of Antigonus had 11,000 heavy infantry in his phalanx, 4,400 cavalry, several thousand light infantry, and 43 war elephants. Facing north, Ptolemy arrived with 18,000 heavy infantry, 4,000 cavalry, and a large but unspecified force of light infantry. The implication in the source is that Ptolemy's light infantry was far more numerous than Demetrius, but it is unclear how great the disparity was. In addition, large armies incorporating combined arms relied heavily on the contributions of subordinate officers. Demetrius's army had several senior officers, but we don't know any of them by name. On Ptolemy's side, our information is only marginally better, but we know that Seleucus was present and served alongside Ptolemy on the right flank. Each commander had what he believed to be a distinct advantage. Phalangites were men equipped with relatively light body armor and 18-foot-long pikes. The forward momentum of the phalanx was quite formidable and had typically been utilized to pin down enemies so that the cavalry could deliver a death blow in the time of Philip and Alexander. Alexander's successors were students of that school of war, but they found that it was often difficult to pull off victories like Gaugamela when fighting forces and commanders whose goal and tactics were identical. Greek hoplites often served in successor armies, but it is not entirely clear if they fought alongside the Phalanchites or utilized their greater mobility and individual fighting flexibility to fight a little more like the light infantry. The composition of the opposing phalanxes are not specified. By 312, not all Phalangites were Macedonian, and some of the natives of the Persian Empire who had been trained to fight as Macedonians a decade before were still in service. It is highly likely that these men composed a considerable portion of Ptolemy's phalanx, since a large force of these replacement Phalangites were in training in Egypt at the time of Alexander's death. 
light infantry in the early Hellenistic period could vary in terms of their equipment and precise battlefield role. Typically, these men consisted of peltists, archers, and slingers. They could serve to defend the flanks of the pike phalanx, skirmish, or seize and hold high ground when armies passed through difficult terrain. Peltists typically consisted of men equipped with light armor, spear, and a couple of javelins for distance combat. Light infantry are the most underappreciated part of every ancient army, and since they were normally composed of the poorest men in the army, their contributions tend to be ignored. Macedonian battles were typically decided by charges by the heavy cavalry. While horses during this period lacked some of the comfort and control features of later horses, such as stirrup and modern saddles, Macedonian cavalry had a great deal of control over their horses and could deliver devastating charges. By 312, there was some variation in the composition of cavalry forces. Companion cavalry were typically elite and semi-elite Macedonians who rode and fought the nearest to their commanding officer. Other heavy cavalrymen include Thessalians, the Greek residents of the south of Macedon, who were just as skilled as their Macedonian neighbors but were not socially well-connected. During Alexander's great victories at Issus and Gaugamela, the Thessalian contingents had played a vital role in holding off the onslaught of vastly superior Persian numbers, while the Macedonian cavalry on the right delivered the killing blow. Persian cavalry had been regarded as the best in the world prior to Alexander's conquest, and it seems very likely that Persian riders were present in both armies at Gaza, especially Demetrius's army. Macedonian cavalrymen from this period wore a heavy breastplate and helmet. Their primary offensive weapon was a long lance and a sword as a sidearm. The cavalrymen of Greece had recognized for about a century that the Persian-style saber was the ideal sword for mounted combat. So the swords that the cavalrymen at Gaza used were almost certainly curved, slashing weapons, rather than the straight thrusting weapons that were typically used by Macedonian Greek infantry. At Gaza, each commander had an ace up his sleeve, or so they thought. Demetrius' 43 war elements were something that, in theory, Ptolemy would have no way to counter. While Ptolemy, Seleucus, and probably some of their men were familiar with elephants, the majority of the men on the Ptolemaic side probably had not encountered the immensity of an Indian elephant before. Without access to war elephants of his own, Ptolemy's cavalry was vulnerable to panic, as horses find the scent of elephants terrifying if they are not accustomed to it. In addition, the open terrain made an elephant charge against an infantry array a terrifying prospect. Demetrius, who had the numbers in the cavalry department, decided to line up his pachyderms facing the enemy's superior numbers of light and heavy infantry thinking that his elephants could strike hard and fast and offset his disadvantage. Unfortunately for Demetrius and the elephants, Ptolemy, Seleucus, or someone in their camp seems to have anticipated the presence of Antigonid war elephants and brought a special weapon for dealing with them. In previous battles, Alexander's generals had learned the hard way that elephants can be driven off if they are wounded and harassed enough by spears and missile fire. Elephants who were driven back in a panic could become a greater threat to their own side than they had ever been to the enemy. Ptolemy decided the best way to deal with elephants was to arrest their momentum as early as possible by creating a mobile spike strip that the elephants would step on, thus causing them to halt while the light infantry poured in missiles. While we don't know the details of how this weapon was constructed or how deep it was, we know that it was deployed with the light infantry and that they are responsible for its implementation. Naturally, Demetrius was completely unaware of this weapon's existence. Typically, when Macedonian armies deployed against each other, each side would put its chief striking element on the right wing. 
Ptolemy followed this practice by stationing himself with Seleucus and his cavalry on the right. Demetrius, contrary to normal usage, decided to station his cavalry on his left screened by his elephants, thus meaning that the heavy cavalry of each army was arrayed in direct opposition. In the center, both sides had their phalanxes lined up to face each other in what looked like an impasse. Since Ptolemy had the numbers but Demetrius had elephants, Ptolemy's left and Demetrius' right each consisted of a holding force that was little more than a screen for attacks that never materialized. In fact, we hear nothing about either army's weak or wing, and unless our accounts of the battle are incomplete, it would appear that Demetrius's right and Ptolemy's left played no meaningful role in the battle. Early in the day, the skirmishers of both sides exchanged javelins and arrows all morning. Neither Ptolemy nor Demetrius was willing to initiate a primary attack. Ptolemy, because his secret weapon was defensive, and Demetrius because his center was so heavily outnumbered. In the afternoon, Demetrius decided that to defeat Ptolemy's superior force, he would need to seize the initiative and rout Ptolemy's right. Accordingly, he initiated battle. Demetrius advanced around his elephant screen at a trot the lighter elements leading the way. Ptolemy sent forward his light cavalry to disrupt this maneuver and keep Demetrius off balance and out of formation. Unexpectedly, Demetrius ordered his light advance guard to charge the enemy. This move was bold and unorthodox, as advance guards typically did not charge headlong. The sheer audacity of this charge, combined with support from some Tarentine javelinmen that Demetrius had sent with them, routed Ptolemy's advance guard and pushed them back after a brief but hard fight. The momentum created by this light cavalry charge threatened the integrity of Ptolemy's whole mounted force, and had Demetrius been in a position to add his heavy cavalry at that moment, he would have caught Ptolemy stationary and carried the day at a stroke. However, Ptolemy was able to counterattack and throw in all of his heavy cavalry, thus reversing the situation completely. Demetrius's men were now in danger of being totally routed, so he too was forced to commit his full force in order to stabilize the situation. At this point, both commanders had lost an easy opportunity to achieve a rout. The struggle on the flank would now depend less on timing and strategy and almost entirely on the skill and valor of the men engaged. With all the horsemen of each army engaged, the battle now devolved into a mobile battle where each squadron would swoop in to attack, exchange lance thrusts, and circle back to regroup and attack again. Masonian warfare knew almost no cowardly or passive commanders, and we could easily imagine Demetrius, Ptolemy, and Seleucus both rallying and directing squadrons, while also exchanging blows with the enemies who came into range of their lances. The fighting dragged on with no clear winner, and no one securing an advantage. In fact, the battle was so intense that after a certain amount of time, the men had to rely on their swords and get more up close and personal, because their lances had broken. Our ancient sources rarely provide details on things as minor as weapons used during any particular battle, so this implies that the battle's ferocity went far beyond what was normal for cavalry engagements. As the battle slowed down and maneuver was reduced to a minimum, a stalemate set in with neither side able to secure an advantage. While we have no estimates for the losses suffered during this engagement, they must have been reasonably heavy for both cavalry forces. 
we know only that the bodies had been piling up since the early stages of the fighting and that men continued to fall steadily. Since he was at a slight disadvantage in cavalry numbers, Ptolemy was quite content to let the stalemate continue and leave the onus for action on his young adversary. Seeing that he would not be able to rout Ptolemy and sweep down on the enemy infantry as he had hoped, Demetrius ordered his elephants to move from his left to his center and prepare to charge. His hope was that the shock of his war elephants would be enough to offset Ptolemy's numerical advantage and achieve a rout in the center, which would secure the day for his side. Demetrius issued an order to his elephant handlers to smash through the center and then roll around Ptolemy's right flank to end the intense cavalry contest. While the horsemen on the flank continued to slug it out, Demetrius's elephants advanced towards Ptolemy's center. The centers of the two armies, aside from exchanging missile fire, had made no major moves and the heavy infantry of both sides were fresh. As the elephants advanced, Demetrius's officers decided to aim the elephant assault at the portion of the enemy line held by the light infantry, thinking that this would be easier to penetrate than the hedgerow of pikes presented by the heavily armed phalangites. This, of course, is exactly what Ptolemy had hoped they would do. When the elephants hit the spike strip, they must have reared up in agonizing pain. On cue, Ptolemy's light infantry rushed forward, raining in projectiles to both inflict more pain on the animals and to cause confusion by killing the men responsible for handling the elephants. The elephants panicked and began to rout, thus trampling some of the Antigonid infantry who were following the elephants and looking to exploit the hoped-for breakthrough. From the flank, some of the cavalrymen, who were not in the thick of the fray, would have been able to see the rout of the elephants unfolding, and the news of events in the center quickly spread. For Ptolemy and Seleucus, their men were inspired and began to redouble their efforts. For Demetrius, this meant that his men's spirits were becoming deflated. Despite Demetrius's best efforts to cheer on his men, they knew the battle was lost and began to withdraw from the field. Normally, forces that were routed in ancient battles suffered the bulk of their casualties during the rout, and those casualties were far greater than those of the victorious army. However, the extremely unusual nature of the battle, where almost all of the extended fighting took place on one flank between cavalry, means that we have to rethink the casualty distribution for both armies. In the center, the combination of the elephants stampeding back through the Antigonid ranks and the subsequent Ptolemaic counterattack means that the typical lopsided disparity that we see with routes must have held true in the center. On Demetrius's left and Ptolemy's right, however, there is no reason to think that either side suffered any more or less than the other. Many routes led to massive losses because cavalry would ride down infantrymen with their lances. However, the Ptolemaic horses were mostly exhausted after having fought for a few hours and their lances were shattered. The bulk of Demetrius's cavalry seems to have escaped in good order, although his infantry did not fare nearly as well. Demetrius dispatched some of his cavalry to Gaza itself to retrieve some of the army's baggage. But in the confusion, they were unable to shut the gates behind them, and Ptolemy's men entered before they could get away with the goods, thus allowing Ptolemy to avoid a time-consuming siege of the city of Gaza. The Battle of Gaza, like many contests in the wars of the successors, resulted in the surrender and realignment of a considerable body of Macedonian soldiers. 8,000 Antigonid infantry were left in the lurch by the rout of their army and forced to surrender to Ptolemy. 
These men re-enlisted in Ptolemy's forces, which was a considerable boon to the satrap of Egypt's fighting capacity. As Ptolemy's only major battlefield victory, Gaza stands out as his most impressive military accomplishment. Ptolemy was at the height of his power in a position to embark on a great campaign of expansion in the wake of his great victory. Although his army had been shattered and he had failed in his mission, Demetrius kept his composure in the wake of the disaster at Gaza. Retreating north to Tripoli, he began to recruit more men while mounting small operations and issuing orders to help beleaguered and endangered garrisons as best he could. Even at this early stage, Demetrius showed unflagging resolve and the ability to recover from the kind of setback that would have broken most men. Plutarch, in his biography of Demetrius, is critical of the man's character and excessive love of pleasure, but he admired his ability to take even the greatest defeats and setbacks in stride. The primary victor at Gaza was Ptolemy, and he was the first to collect his rewards. Taking his victorious army in tow, Ptolemy captured Tyre and Sidon and worked to consolidate his position in the region. After concluding those operations, Ptolemy approved of Seleucus' plans to reclaim Babylonia and gave him a small force to accomplish this task. Leaving a subordinate in charge of his field army, Ptolemy returned to Egypt, probably intending to go back to Syria later to make further gains. Gaza and its immediate aftermath marked the beginning of a long and complex relationship between Ptolemy and Demetrius. Ptolemy demonstrated his generosity by sending Demetrius' friends and personal effects, along with other gifts to Tripoli, and expressed his praise for Demetrius' bravery in battle. Plutarch tells us that Demetrius was moved by Ptolemy's conduct and resolved to achieve military success so that he could prove himself to be as generous victor as Ptolemy. The friendly rivalry between Ptolemy and Demetrius would turn to enmity. In 306, when Demetrius won an overwhelming victory over Ptolemy at Salamis, Ptolemy would show himself to be bitter and vengeful towards Demetrius after the latter's great defeat at Ipsus in 301. It appears that the two men remained on bad terms for the rest of their respective lives. News of the disaster at Gaza reached Antigonus in Asia Minor and made him completely rethink his strategy. With Syria and all of its eastern satrapies now exposed, Antigonus immediately understood the danger that was now facing his empire. Returning to the east with his main army, he intended to assume personal command in Syria and settle accounts with Ptolemy, whom Antigonus accused of having done nothing more impressive than defeating a mere boy. When Demetrius petitioned his father to allow him to remain in command and redeem himself, Antigonus relented. Demetrius was able to wipe away the stain of his defeat at Gaza by heavily defeating Ptolemy's subordinate Silles, leading to the capture of 7,000 men and the reclamation of the most of the territory that Ptolemy had gained at Gaza. Seleucus invaded Babylonia in 312 with just 800 infantry and 200 cavalry. His invasion gained steam, and he was able to raise more troops and seize Babylon, whose satrap had fallen in battle at Gaza. As Seleucus continued to gain steam in his old home territory, he quickly became the most serious threat to Antigonus and Demetrius. Accordingly, Antigonus the One-Eyed agreed to a status quo peace agreement with Ptolemy, Cassander, and Lysimachus. Ptolemy and Cassander had treated with Antigonus before about ending the war, and both of them felt that ending the war was the key to their continued survival. The successors, being as vicious and cutthroat as they were, presumably never lost a night's sleep over abandoning Seleucus at the tender mercies of Antigonus. The peace which ended the Third War of the Successors 
was the most fraudulent of all the peace agreements during the age of the successors. Antigonus and Seleucus remained at war with one another for another three years in the so-called Babylonian War. Unfortunately, we have very little information from our sources about this conflict. It seems safe to say that Antigonus was heavily favored to win this war as he was vastly superior in terms of resources and military assets. When the Babylonian War ended in 308, however, Antigonus recognized Seleucus' independence, and Seleucus was in control of not only all of Babylonia, but all of the eastern satrapies stretching east to the Indus River. From this power base, Seleucus would come close to reuniting all of Alexander's old empire in 281 BC. The Seleucid Empire itself would officially last until 63 BC. While Seleucus chose to date his empire's start in 312 to correspond with his return to Babylon, an argument could be made that the Battle of Gaza, fought in the early spring of that same year, was the real time and place and birth of the Seleucid Empire.